0: Welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. This is Dan Worley, one of your co-hosts, I'm joined as always by the other co host Dan Wallach. Dan, what's happening today?
1: Uh well first of all happy uh New Year's Eve, Dan, and happy New Year's Same Eve to you. our to, to our guest. Uh we're definitely packing in uh an all-star lineup in these uh you know last couple of days of the year. Yesterday we had two days ago we had Warren Zola. Today we're going to have uh Paul Anderson taking us through the uh minefield of uh of of NFL and NHL and all the sports you know concussion litigation, so um, you know this this is really going to be a good episode more for me to learn uh, because in the field of sports law, we're able to kind of like drill in on on issues pretty quickly or pretty pretty easily with a little bit of research. But I have to tell you that the world of sports concussion law is just so vast. Uh, that I think today's uh, podcast is going to be a tutorial and, and a great teaching experience and we're lucky to have one of the nation's leading experts on sports concussion law, uh, Paul Anderson. Welcome to the podcast, Paul.
2: Welcome. Thank you, guys. I greatly appreciate you inviting me to come on. And First off, i got to tell you how phenomenal of a job you guys are doing in this podcast. Um, both of you guys are, are, are real pioneers in this area, and it's a great service to everyone out there to stay abreast of the sports law issues. I know I, I listen to these podcasts every, as, so, as soon as a new episode comes out as, as I uh, wow. am running or, or working out at the gym, so I greatly appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Paul. We, thank we didn't have to pay him you. to say that even. So that's a good start. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Paul, Paul's an interesting case. He's really an inspiration, I think, for a lot of people out there. You, you, this isn't a video feed, but you can see Paul right now. Paul's a young guy. I mean, Paul's, I don't want to guess your age, but you're probably hovering around the 30 year mark. And just the amount that you've accomplished um, coming from, you know, I think starting in law school and up to the point where you are now is is pretty phenomenal. And I. You know, I, Just because I have a website and I, I get law students frequently calling me saying, "You know, how can I break into the sports law industry? I get that a lot. So I, I, I talk with them. and I, I frequently use Paul as an example of someone who really utilized everything out there for himself, started a website, got his self-recognition, showed his expertise, and now he's practicing in the field and he's extremely successful doing so. Um, so, Paul, I think I'd love to hear from you. I mentioned the websites NFLConcussionLitigation.com. I'd love to hear from you. Look, you know, why did you start that site? You know, what's what's it become for you, and and how did that open some doors?
2: Well, thanks for the kind words. I did just hit the big three zero in November, uh, so I'm looking forward to the
0: the thirties. Yeah, Happy I've... birthday! It's not they're not too bad. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it was a great experience. You know, as as you noted, it's very tough to to break into the sports law arena as a as a law student. I was like a lot of my colleagues. At the time, you know, it was a very tough uh, economic market and and job market. So, my last year of law school, despite having good grades, I hadn't landed that that ideal job yet. And so, I had to figure out a way to try to distinguish myself from from the rest of my peers. And I noticed that this legal blogging was becoming a pretty hot topic. Um, And as as I was researching for the first for my law review article that I was going to write, I came across a report on the first uh, lawsuit filed against the NFL. Uh, back in July of 2011 so I started researching and I was like wow this is pretty phenomenal and you have former NFL players making these allegations against the NFL of fraudulent misconduct over brain injuries and it kind of brought together three areas that I really enjoyed class actions torts and sports law um, so from there I I figured hey why don't I start researching this issue and I learned how serious brain injuries and concussions Really are and how they are affecting these former uh, giants of, of the football era, um, and so I started writing my law review article, and I decided, hey, you know, how can I, you know, put my name out there um, and 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 start a website? So I started the NFL concussion litigation in a website in January of 2012, and it kind of turned into the quote unquote go to website for the coverage of the NFL concussion litigation.
1: Paul, do you do you track all of the different lawsuits? I mean, that must be a monumental undertaking. I mean, NFLLitigation.com. I mean, we know that there are you know at least fifty opt-out cases, but there are probably in excess of a hundred separate lawsuits that have been filed. Do you you track each one of those? Is there current information on your website, uh, you know, as to, as as to the status of the cases? Uh, well,
2: sir, to a certain extent, I do. You know, whenever I was really focused on on the website and, the, and and writing on a daily basis I, I did that at the outset uh, but my role kind of transformed uh, from commentator to litigator uh, after I got out of law school so I still stay abreast of of, of, of the various lawsuits that are being filed um, and I try to post as frequently as possible but but now my a lot more of my focus is on actual litigation we, we represent about 24 guys in in opt-out litigation against the Kansas City Chiefs and the Arizona Cardinals, as well as we just wrapped up a case against the NCAA involving uh, Derek Shealy.
0: Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that Derek Shealy case? I know that was a a pretty huge settlement. and I I know you guys did a great job, and you don't see the NCAA dishing money out that regularly, so you can tell us a little bit more about that case.
2: Yeah, Derek Shealy was a tremendously tragic case And in fact, I, we filed this case basically as soon as I got out of law school, um, and it involved death of a 22 year old, uh, fullback who played at a small, uh, college in Western Maryland called Frostburg state university. Derek Sheely was the captain of the team. Um, and they were in training camp for the last, last, uh, last season of of his collegiate career. Um, and during a four day period, his forehead was bleeding he had a large bruise on his on his forehead as well. And uh, finally, on the last day, he told his coaches, you know, I can't go on any longer. And his coaches allegedly said, stop being a P-U-S-S-Y, Derek, get back out there. Derek obeyed his coaches and subsequently took another hit and collapsed and never regained consciousness and, and died six days later from from second impact syndrome. So we sued uh, the NCAA as the the, the governor of, of sports uh, two of the coaches and the athletic trainer and the hel- helmet manufacturer and helmet supplier. And we litigated that case in Montgomery County in Maryland, which is a suburb of, of D.C. over a three-year period and finally settled it basically a, a week before for trial um, with all defendants chipping in and, and contributing $1.2 million. Wow. wow.
0: it's pre- It's pretty pretty incredible story and obviously a lot of these all of this essentially is a very very sad story underneath it but um, you know you hope that the money that comes from this and we're going to we're going to talk about some some huge numbers in a minute here with the NFL concussion litigation yeah. you know it really helps the people involved and the people that are hurt but Let's move on to the NFL concussion litigation, which you know is the title of your website. So you must know one or two things about it, I would imagine. But uh, obviously, it was recently in the news. The settlement for the big case, at least, was finalized and will not be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, can you really just kind of give us a background of what that lawsuit alleges? I mean, I know when I talked to about the lawsuit with people. The the frequent response that I get is, well, didn't the players know that, you know, you could get hurt when you play football, and shouldn't there be some sort of assumption of risk going forward? Can you combat that argument and really explain what the lawsuit was about?
2: Yeah, I'll start uh, with kind of the outset of of the basis for which this lawsuit was brought. You know, we consider it basically the granddaddy of concussion litigation. It kind of paved the way for the rest of this litigation uh, that you see going on around the country. So, really, the basis of the lawsuit is 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 that the NFL knew or should have known about the long term risk of repetitive brain trauma that occurs in football, um, and the later life cognitive decline and issues related to brain injuries that arise whenever a player uh, leaves leaves the game of football. And so, medical science, at least from our standpoint and, and our experts' uh, standpoint, uh, the scientific community has known about. Dementia-related, football-related dementia since the 1920s, and it really began with the boxers. Um, Dementia pugilistica was was the name that was first identified and coined by Harrison Martland. Basically, it's a it's a form of of now the term that you hear CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And you, back in the 1920s, boxers were experiencing this, and then even the football. Industry started noting that, that football players should not be returned to play after suffering concussions. And then, from there was kind of a period for about 70 years, effectively, where there was never, there was in the literature, there wasn't much of a link identified between football, brain trauma, and CTE. And it wasn't until Dr. Malou, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the movie Concussion, which Will Smith plays Dr. Malu, uh, really put this issue on the map. And Dr. Amalu had the opportunity uh, just by happenstance to examine the brain of Mike Webster. Um, And Mike Webster, he identified uh, having signs in his brain similar to what they were noting in boxers in the 1920s. And he he decided to term this also chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. Um, And then thereafter... Multiple diagnoses were being made of other, other players posthumously because um, you can only examine a brain after an individual has, has died to determine whether they truly have CTE. Um, and so Dr. Malu brought this to the NFL's attention, thinking that the NFL would accept this with open arms. But on the contrary, the NFL said, no, there's no way uh, that there's any link between repetitive brain trauma and CTE. So what the NFL did is they went on a, on a, on a mission – um, to all but deny and dispute the link between repetitive brain trauma and, and CTE. So they, they appointed Dr. Elliot Pellman, who was a rheumatologist, to lead the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee in 1994.
1: The and mild, the mild <laughs> the traumatic brain injury. I love the title. What an what a, what a unbelievable, unbelievably insensitive euphemism.
2: Exactly. I mean, it's, it's it really throws it off. And to add to that, you you have a rheumatologist who's leading this brain injury committee. Uh, you know, a person who de- deals with knees and joints instead of going out and getting a, a famed neurosurgeon or a neurologist or neuropathologist, they get a, a guy that deals with knees and joints who is also uh, allegedly um, uh, the commissioner Tagliabue's uh, personal physician. So, nevertheless, uh, this this committee spent the next fifteen years publishing. Studies and scientific journals flat out denying the link between repetitive brain trauma uh, and and CTE, stating that, you know, football concussions in football are not serious injuries. There's no evidence that a player will suffer these long term injuries. So thereafter, um, after 15 years, the scientific community engaged in this debate. On the one hand, people saying, no, it's absolutely clear that there's a link. On the other hand, you have the NFL who's denying it. Um, Congress got involved in 2009, and they, they ordered a congressional committee on football uh, and brain injuries, asking why so many retired players were dying, dying at such young ages from, from suicide and other, and other issues. Um, and so in 2009, uh, Commissioner, or Congresswoman Linda Sanchez scolded Roger Goodell and even analogized the NFL's conduct to big tobacco. And I think that was one of the major, you know, turning points or, or major points in the history of concussion litigation is you had the plaintiff's bar uh, taking note that Congress is, you know, comparing the NFL's conduct to big tobacco. And mind you, this is around the same time that that litigation had just wrapped up against big tobacco in which billions of dollars of settlements occurred. Um, and so thereafter, I think the plaintiff's bar began to, to study this issue and, and, and talk to players and retired players, and they found out that retired players had no clue that football can cause brain injuries. And, and as, you, as you noted, Dan, uh, you know, there's this idea that people will say, well, of course, what do you expect? You know, you're, you're, you're huge 300-pound men banging your head over and over again. Of course you're going to have issues. Right, but whenever you have... The NFL and, and your, your employer telling you that, no, you're not going to have any long-term issues. I think you, you accept what your employer says at face value. And yeah, you, you think you're going to have knees and, and back issues, hip issues, uh, these orthopedic issues, but nobody really realized that the, the constant repetitive subconcussive blows that you get could turn into this full-blown dementia later on or, or, or also CTE later on after your life. And, and caused some of these horrific acts of suicide that some players have, have suffered. Um, and so thereafter, in 2011, the first lawsuit was filed out in California against the NFL, making these allegations that the NFL uh, acted like big tobacco and misrepresented and concealed the link between repetitive brain trauma and CTE. Um, and so it, it then spiraled into this massive concussion litigation where you had over 4,500 players Filing lawsuits all throughout the country, and MDL was formed in uh, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania in front of Judge Brody, and then the lit- litigation proceeded from there
1: yeah, but uh, you know Paul, uh, the, despite the comparison of big tobacco and we 're talking about forty five hundred five thousand players, why did the class action settle? For, for what is just a, a drop in the bucket for the National Football League. When you look at their annual revenues, which are $10 billion, if not more, per year, uh, close to 5,000 players are going to share in a settlement pool of less than $1 billion. I, th- I think, I think uh, Judge Brody found that that was not enough, and the parties went back to the bargaining table and came up with a modified uh, class action settlement. Why did they get off so uh, inexpensively relative uh, to, to the possible liability and, and undoubtedly the vast damage across the spectrum?
2: Yeah, I certainly think that's a fair criticism. And I, I, our, our legal team was not part of the negotiations. We were not, uh, we never even made a a motion to try to be appointed to the steering committee. It was a group of about 12 law firms on the plaintiff side that, that led, uh, the negotiations and the the subsequent settlement with the NFL and and just kind of to take a step back, um, and talk about the formation of, of the negotiations and the settlement. Um, I think, you know, what, what, what forced these parties to the table initially was the NFL filed a motion to dismiss, uh, asserting that all of these lawsuits are, are preempted by federal labor law. Basically, that all these cases must go to arbitration and they don't belong in court and they're not going to have a chance to have a jury award you know, billions and billions of dollars in damages, uh, let alone even discovery that could you know, show the NFL's or prove the NFL's uh, fraudulent conduct. So that was teed up in front of the court. You had on, on both sides some of the best lawyers in the country. Uh, for the NFL, you had Paul Clement, and then you had uh, David Fredericks for the, for the plaintiffs. Um, they argued this case in front of Judge Brody, and Judge Brody took it under advisement, and she ordered the parties to go to uh, mediation. Um, she, she reportedly told the parties that, that you're not, you're not going to like the way I'm going to rule I'm gonna, you know, to some extent, I'm gonna, I'm gonna gut all these claims. Some of the claims may stay alive, so that was a threat to the NFL of the potential risk of discovery. Um, so I think the parties came together and said, hey, you know, if if we're not gonna be happy with Judge Brody's ruling, why don't we see if we can mediate this and get this resolved? And that's what came out to this uh, initially capped settlement of around 765 million dollars that would that would cover all all former players, not just the 5,000 that filed suit, but all all former players, which is approximately 18,000 retired players, are part of this class action settlement. Um, and Judge Brody looked at the number, and she was concerned that despite the somewhat large payouts for certain claimants, there was not going to be enough money to go around for all. So that's where the parties went back to the table and negotiated an uncapped settlement, in which... Uh, the amount is to there is is not going to be a cap on the amount and, and every claim that meets these qualifications will will be paid out but that's that's kind of the rub of of the settlement is you know the it, the settlement may be uncapped, but at the same time only a small percentage of those eighteen thousand approximately twenty percent or less of those eighteen thousand are ever going to receive compensation uh, and that's that's really where. The big issue and where the appeals came out is the settlement does not uh, provide compensation to the overwhelming majority of of class members, and despite them losing their rights to sue or, or proceed, uh, in exchange they're really effectively getting nothing because CTE was, was was removed from the settlement altogether.
0: Yeah. So can you just talk through for the audience of how that's actually paid out and, and what. The players, is this correct that they would, the former players would need a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's or, or something that would be linked to a head injury in order to recover any money whatsoever?
2: Yes, yeah, so the, the, the settlement only pays for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, and, and a cert, certain category of, of CTE individuals who died with CTE uh, during a specific time frame. Um, and anybody who dies with CTE, CTE ap- after April 22nd, 2015, will never receive a dime. Um, and and according to the NFL's own actuarial data, it indicates that the overwhelming majority—and this is a quote from from the from class council and the NFL's actuarial data—the overwhelming majority of class members will not be compensated because they do not qualify for. Uh, a compensable disorder, um, and I think that's. And then the other, the other significant part, and just to give you an example of the CTE cutoff date, is, is someone who, who's died after April twenty second, two thousand fifteen, Ken Stabler. Uh, he died after that date. He was subsequently diagnosed with CTE, and despite being diagnosed with CTE, his family will receive nothing under the settlement. Um, so, I th- And that was really the, the core issue um, at stake um, on appeal of the Third Circuit was this, this entire settlement or this entire litigation was, was based on CTE, uh, the quote-unquote industrial disease, and it was all but removed uh, through negotiations and, and the settlement. Uh, so anybody going forward who dies uh, and, and has this quote-unquote industrial disease from football won't receive any compensation
1: for CTE. I mean, could this change at some point if, uh, you know, medical science or there's some breakthrough uh, in the research that will allow CTE to be diagnosed in the living? I know there have there, been a lot of recent um, uh, groundbreaking, you know, research on how that might be possible. If you could detect CTE in a living person, would that Individual be able to qualify as a claimant under the settlement, or would the settlement uh, could you change the settlement to open it up to include CTE diagnoses in the living? How do you address this if one year, two years, five years down the road, you can you can begin to diagnose it uh, in the living?
2: You're exactly right, and you know that's 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 one of the the, the major issues with the settlement is 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 I and we weren't part of of the objection process either. Our guys just opted out. So we are we wanted to preserve our guys' claims mm-hmm. cuz none of them would be compensated under the settlement. And so we're going to proceed with their their claims going forward. But to answer your question, we believe and the objectors asserted that this settlement freezes science in place. And and why we say that is because the settlement specifically provides that despite, you know, these these innovations and, and, and the ability to, to soon, if not currently, diagnose CTE in the living, the settlement specifically provides that it will not compensate an individual who, let's just say as, as an example in the future or now, an, an individual who has an in vivo diagnosis of CTE. They won't, they won't qualify and the settlement won't be modified for that, that, uh, that determination, if that's ever possible, which we believe it will happen soon. So if a player in the next 10 years is diagnosed in vivo with CTE, that still will not, not provide them for compensation under the settlement. The only way that they can receive compensation is if they have one of these qualifying diagnoses. So if they have CTE and dementia, some type of neurocognitive deficits, neurocognitive impairment, then they could get Compensation, but effectively CTE has been taken off uh, the table altogether. Despite what what other innovations may occur in the future,
1: I mean that just sounds uh, you know outrageous given how quickly. Um, the science and, and our knowledge about CE is just emerging, you know, in, in like lightning-fast fashion. I mean, three, four years, year, two years ago, we weren't talking about CTE. And now it's on this like bullet towards, uh, you, you know, being a full, becoming this fully realized type of diagnosis. And it just seems like the settlement is archaic uh, or will seem archaic in five years. Uh, I mean, how, how did the courts approve this and how did... The class Action Council not can not include a carve out in the settlement agreement for CTE diagnoses in the living uh, would that, that would not have created a, a rupture to the to, to the NFL's exposure.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think what Class Council argued is is a couple things. Is is one it it does it can still co- compensate somebody with CTE if they have dementia. So it's kind of yeah kinda, but
1: but read, but read CTE out, out of existence. Yeah, yeah because CTE doesn't matter.
2: I agree. And and I think that you know that's what the objectors noted is really that's a that that's kind of a red red herring on the part of class counsel. The NFL said, you know, we're not going to pay for anybody who has CTE just because, you know, the classic symptoms of CTE is is mood and behavioral issues and and the general population has mood and behavioral issues. So How, why, why do, why do we want to open up the pocketbooks for anybody who has these mood and behavioral issues? So that, and that's what class council said is, look, we tried to negotiate this. We tried to get the NFL to pay for CTE, but it was just a matter of, of line drawing and the NFL was only willing to go so far. Um, You know, I, I don't know. We weren't part of the negotiations. So, so I just taking class council at their word. I, I, you know, I, 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 assume that they, they negotiated the best deal that they could get and the NFL may have not been willing to budge, but I think we can all agree at the end of the day that this entire exclusion of CTE is entirely unfair, and that's why our guys opted out of the settlement.
0: So talk about that opt-out, the opt-out cases moving forward. I know that you, as you mentioned, you represent a number of them. I mean, you're at least involved with a number of them. And, you know, that's – it seems like that's going to be the new thing moving forward, or like the leftovers. How How is that shaping up – procedurally moving forward
2: right so there's a there was initially there was around 200 players that opted out former players that opted out i think the number has now been whittled down to approximately 100 and um you know we've we've been all of the lit, opt-out litigation has been stayed pending the resolution of of the entire uh, class action settlement and, and that pretty much has come to an end now that the supreme court has denied cert so that you're right, that's going to be the next phase of litigation. we I think the NFL concussion litigation is really far from over because you have several opt out cases that are going to proceed either on a on a collective basis or on an individual basis um, and we're 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 waiting for Judge Brody's order in which she uh, sets a uh, a case management order together as to how these cases are going to proceed. I uh, think first off the n f l is going to say that you know all these cases, just like prior to settlement negotiations are are barred by the collective bargaining agreement, are preempted so therefore uh none of these cases belong in court instead they should go to arbitration um so we anticipate probably, probably in the spring of two thousand seventeen uh these issues will be briefed up for the court, and Judge Brody will rule on whether our cases as an as an example uh should go back to state court. In Missouri, where where we initially filed these cases, or if they belong in federal court, which we do not believe they do. And if if she uh, grants our motion to remand and sends our cases back, back to state court, then we're off to the races into discovery and subsequently trial.
1: All right. How closely have you been following the uh, NFL's litigation with their insurance carriers? You know, the NFL gets this you know terrific deal where, where they're paying you know basically, uh, you know, pennies on the dollar to settle to settle the Granddaddy case, and yet they're trying to get their insurance companies, their insurance carriers like Altera and, and Discover, to foot the bill for all of their concussion payments. Well, these insurers have just gotten the green light to obtain discovery uh from the National Football League documents depositions will you be involved at all in that process or or in any way hoping to get uh you know documents how how important is that case uh for the opt out plaintiffs
2: well it certainly sets up an inter- interesting dynamic where you have the insurers effectively seeking similar discovery that the plaintiffs in the opt out litigation Will want. I mean, the insurers have already noted in their in their in their briefing that they want to find out what the NFL knew and when they knew it, and their 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 goal is to find some type of uh, exclusion, and that exclusion would be be if the NFL you know essentially committed fraud on the players. Um, so certainly we we are interested in what they discover. It looks like based on the the uh, case management order that came out out in New York um, that. The insurers are going to start propounding discovery on February one of two thousand seventeen, and then depositions are going to begin shortly thereafter. Um, and and yeah, I, th- I think you know based on e- efficiency and judicial economy, you would certainly uh, think that that the plaintiffs in the opt out cases, since it's similar discovery, uh, should be entitled to, to to see what what discovery is is being propounded and. And and what uh, the merits of of these claims are?
1: Yeah, but do you see the NFL uh, moving to settle this case much more quickly now? Uh, the NFL has lost several rounds of trying to dis- of trying to stay discovery in the insurance dispute. Uh, most recently, two days ago, uh, New York's appellate division denied an, I- an interim request for a stay pending appeal. So now. Uh, so now for all intents and purposes, it's full steam ahead for the insurers. Will the NFL move quickly to settle this case to keep that kind of discovery out of the hands of, of, of the insurers and consequently out of the hands of the opt-out plaintiffs?
2: Well, you know, who, who knows? But I think we all know that the NFL certainly has the money to, to foot their own bill if they want. And it just comes down to exposure. Um, do they want this, this uh, information? Are they concerned that the, a that the discovery process uh, will be explosive? Like uh, like we, the majority of people believe. Um, and if, if the NFL you know weighs that, weighs that risk and just determines, hey, let, let's just bite the bullet and, and fork this bill ourselves to, to pay for the settlement, um, the NFL concussion settlement, and to resolve this coverage action, um, sure, I, I think it, they, they will take that step. Of course, that still uh, – now they, they have to turn their focus to the opt-out litigation where, again, we're going to be uh, focusing on, on, on the same discovery, you know what, what the NFL knew and when they knew it, and what they did to inform or, or not inform their players. So one way or the other, we're going to get to the bottom of, of, of the NFL's and, the, and the, the, for the Kansas City Chiefs and the other team's uh, misconduct.
0: Interesting. So, is it the NFL's position that the entire settlement is covered by insurance? Is that is that what they're arguing? In that case,
2: yeah. I mean, it, that, I mean, that's that's really really the the core contention. The insurers are saying that we don't have a duty to to indemnify um, based on exclusion that the NFL committed fraud on, on the players. And the NFL is saying, no, you do have a duty, and and you need to fork over the 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 settlement amount to cover this. The, the main underlying class action litigation,
0: right? It's it's really interesting. It's been a pretty underreported piece of this. Uh, when people say, "Oh, well, it's just one one billion dollars to the NFL," well, in reality, the NFL is not going to pay any of that out of its own pocket, potentially, depending on how that all goes. So,
2: right, uh, and and the insurers they've already paid, you know, a tremendous amount in in attorneys' fees alone for the duty to defend that the NFL uh, defended the, the class action settlement. So, I mean, you you can only imagine how much the Paul Weiss law firms are, are billing on an hourly basis over a thousand dollars an hour. And this litigation has been, been proceeding for, for three and a half years, not longer. Um, the, I'm sure those legal fees are, are pretty huge.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, one thing that Dan and I were talking about before that we found really interesting are, you know, the rule changes that have taken place, since this has become a mainstream issue and we see concussion protocol in the NFL, college sports, high school sports. Um, Do you see these rules? Are they working? Uh, You know, is there going to be more changes coming? Do we see, uh, you know, there's, I, I can't remember the case this year, but there was a, you know, a clear concussion in the NFL and the spotters didn't see it. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you guys are still, still getting this stuff wrong. I mean, What's in the future as far as rule changes and do you think that they're still considering changing some of the ways that the game is played?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll begin with, with just a, an antidote. Whenever I first started researching this in, in 2011, um, whenever I'd you know, put new content on my website, I would always try to find various concussion articles. And at that time, I would find a concussion article once a month. Um, and by the time the litigation was filed and it really exploded onto mainstream, on Google Alerts, you're, you're seeing a gazillion concussion articles. So I think that's an indication of the awareness that the entire concussion litigation has brought to the public. And I think that has been a, a tremendous service to, to all athletes, to all parents, in, in getting educated about the serious risk of repetitive brain trauma and concussions. So despite setting putting all the legal legal issues aside, I think the concussion litigation has really uh, done a tremendous service to the public and to the players' health uh, going forward. And of course, with the new newfound awareness, uh, it has brought these rule changes. And I think, to 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 the overwhelming extent, the rule changes have been have been positive. Um, we can start, for example, at, at the NFL level. You know, certainly there are, are still several hiccups. Um, and and the, I think the example you were talking about was was Casey Keenum, the the, the Rams Rams yep, quarterback, that's it. Uh, who who was blatantly missed. Um, but you, you you look at the NFL where you have you know fourteen doctors on each sideline, various eyes in the sky. I mean, every possible thing imaginable to identify concussions, and at times you still have missed concussions. But I think you know we should probably look focus at. At, at a much more uh, lower level, and that's at Pop Warner and middle school and high school and even college. Uh, you know, the NFL players now are, are getting paid, you know, several hundred thousands of dollars, um, and, they're, they're, and, they're, and they're being well compensated, which is a good thing. They, they, they certainly deserve that. Um, and they have uh, a fairly solid and competent medical staff now that are, are cognizant of concussions but you don't have that same level at the middle school, high school, or even Pop Warner level. A lot of these kids are, are being told to still engage in, in head-to-head contact uh, despite having concussion s- symptoms and being told to go back in. And I think that's really where the NFL should focus on, on, on real rule changes. And maybe the real rule change or maybe the real change that needs to occur is is that tackle football, you know, we need to consider whether kids should even be playing tackle football. Uh, we know that brain trauma is not a good thing. So why are we allowing these kids at six years old to put on a big, heavy plastic helmet with hardly any, any, any neck strength yet at all to engage in, 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 in contact, head contact and, and subsequently brain trauma? Maybe the NFL should start heavily promoting instead of you know quote unquote safe football or or heads up football. Maybe they should start promoting flag football. Um, and you look you look at the Tom Brady's of the world. He didn't start playing football till he was he was 14 years old, and, and obviously he's he's one of the best best players of of all time. Um, so I, I think I think if, if the NFL wants to make sure that football can survive and also thrive, it's going to take more than just you know pushing the kickoff back or, or concussion protocols, I think it may, may come ta- down to a time that we need to look, at, look outside the box and, and figure out a way to, to ensure that whenever these, these athletes subsequently make it to the NFL that they don't already have CTE. Um, and that, the only way that I think we can do that is by uh, eliminate, eliminating brain trauma whenever these kids are, are at such a, such a young adolescent age and their brains are still developing.
1: But Paul, you know, this is laying a lot at the NFL's feet to to basically have this channeling effect throughout all of you know youth and middle school football. Wouldn't this be a better opportunity for Congress to intercede? and get more directly involved, do you, do you see that happening at any point? Because the NFL, can, you know, the NFL can't keep its own house in order and has difficulty in um, and, 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 and just trying to promulgate uh, you know, safeguards and rules and then adhering to them. I mean, that's trouble enough. Is there something that Congress can do or state lawmakers? And I'm not too hopeful that Congress will do anything, but it, do you see that day coming soon where there will be federal legislation in the area?
2: You know, I I think you're right. It seems like the only two ways in which real change is affected is through congressional action or litigation. And, you know, oftentimes, just, you know, as an example, in 2009, when when Congress brought in the NFL um, and said, you know, rule changes need to be made, you need to start protecting the players, uh, and then subsequent litigation, I think it has had this this promising effect. But, yeah, I mean, I think on a grand stage – you know, in, in the best of worlds, congressional action, forcing forcing uh you know some type of legislation, and I don't know you know what the what the resolution would be, um but forcing some type of change. You know this it has happened to a certain extent. Every state has passed a concussion law that mandates that any player that suffers a concussion must be removed from play and is not allowed to return to play until they're cleared by a physician. So that's an example of legislation that, is, that has progressed in, in a positive way. But at the same time, you know, I don't think the NFL, I mean, you're right, they, they can hardly keep their house in order. But at the same time, I don't think the NFL should get a free free pass. They are the proprietor of football. Um, you know, they obviously benefit from from uh, USA football, from from Pop Warner, from promoting football at, at the very basic level, the very beginning level, and being able to get mothers involved and, and providing them with some idea that football yep. can be made safe. So I think, really, they do have a duty. The NFL does have a duty to, to make sure that if they want this game to survive, I mean, these, these kids are the lifeblood of, of football, the, the lifeblood of the NFL. Um, if they want the NFL to survive and continue to be a money-making machine – it's the NFL's responsibility, to to do that in in an honest and truthful way. And right now, frankly, I don't I don't think they are being honest uh, with mothers. Uh, well, they
1: they have the litigation risk hanging over their shoulders. So it you it, know it, it's this inherent conflict that any any positive measures uh, that 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 can be done. Uh, are also are compromised by the you know by the possibility that that can come back and create a uh, a, a litigation threat to them by virtue of conceding or acknowledging something. Is there a, is there a uh, is, is there some difficulty in having this kind of risk hang over the NFL yet charging the NFL with the duty to to uh, um, impact you know you know change you know systemically?
2: You know, I, I think that you're right, but that's often a, a – from my viewpoint as, as a cop-out, that, that you see this often in industries and, and companies is, is they take this, 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 this approach that, hey, well, if we get involved, we're going to subject ourselves to litigation. Well, actually, if you get involved and yeah. do the right thing and implement the right changes, you can prevent litigation, and that's your responsibility. Uh, so, I mean, in the perfect world, of course, I think they, they would do the right thing, tell the truth yeah. and be honest, just like every other company. But everybody is, is so, so concerned about what the effect of their, of their, their conduct is going to be uh, that they engage in this risk mitigation to, to, a, to a T that subsequently yeah. leads to increased risk.
1: Well, these are post-remedial measures that shouldn't impact their, uh, their vulnerability or increase their exposure in litigation. But uh, I, I, I just think uh, you know, the NFL has been lagging behind um, you know, the, the rest of society and lagging behind science. And when has, when has the NFL or, or, for that matter, big business ever done anything voluntarily or at least uh, in, in anything more than a half-assed or half-measured sort of way?
0: Well, I think you look at the NBA right now and you see Adam Silver being progressive on a number of issues and you see the public response is all positive. They're in a much better place to a certain extent than the NFL and I think that a number of lessons can be learned by that. I mean, Adam Silver is obviously a lawyer as well as a very seasoned and smart guy and and he's doing those kinds of things. So what's holding the NFL back here?
2: I agree. I mean, it's funny. My buddies and I were talking about – silver the other day about what a tremendous job he's done for the uh for the nba and and you also look at major league baseball as well you know having guaranteed contracts i think really go a long way but unfortunately it looks like the nfl and the nflpa are, are constantly fighting each other and they they can't provide for you know just the the basic uh job protection and job security that so many athletes deserve, especially at the professional level and, and let alone just the, the college aspect of, of the unfairness and inequities that are, that are going on in sports. Um, you know, it, it it's a, it's a question that, that we're going to be, uh, discussing and and potentially litigating for the next uh, foreseeable future.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good segue to, uh, know, cap our NFL talk and move on quickly to the the NCAA side of things. The the NCAA has settled its concussion litigation, the big one. It's all done. It's over with. But now there's a number of other lawsuits popping up, Paul. Can you talk about those? I think there's been 40 to 50 filed in the last year.
2: Yeah, so the NCAA uh, concussion litigation is, is pretty interesting in that it kind of followed a similar mold that the NFL did there was a multi-district litigation in MDL that was formed in the Northern District of Illinois that consolidated these 40 plus individual lawsuits that were filed against the NCAA conferences and individual member, member schools. There was a uh, class action settlement that was preliminarily approved that is going to, uh, it's a medical monitoring settlement that's going to potentially provide medical monitoring for any former NCA athlete whether they were a swimmer or a bowler um, any NCA sanctioned sport um, they are going to be entitled to what's called uh medical monitoring and effectively what it'll provide is that an athlete will will if assuming the uh, the settlement is 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 approved finally approved um, granted final approval that is um, then each NCA athlete will re- receive some type of written questionnaire in the mail. They fill it out, and if it's determined um, that they are having some cognitive issues, then they'll come in for an examination by a neurologist and neuropsychologist, and uh, then they can be ter- uh, diagnosed with some type of issue if they're having any. And 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 uh, Dan, this is a a um, going back to your point about um, the progress in science, the NCA settlement actually provides, although it isn't going to provide for any compensation, it does provide for um, the innovation in in science. So one part of the NCA class action settlement is that whenever an in vivo diagnosis of CTE can occur, whenever it becomes readily available and approved by, by the FDA, an athlete, potentially in the next five to 10 years under the NCAA's medical med- monitoring program, under the NCAA class action settlement, an athlete can be diagnosed with CTE and receive that diagnosis. Um, and then as part of the settlement, the settlement only provides for medical monitoring and preserves an, an individual, individual's right to file a personal injury uh, claim directly against the NCAA or the member school or conference. So effectively what this has set up, the NCAA settlement has set up is that an athlete in the future can get a diagnosis with CTE um, and then file an individual personal injury action against the NCAA uh, for compensation for their the, the CTE that they're that they're suffering from. So I think that is the, that may very well be the next major wave in concussion litigation is is uh Litigation against the NCAA and individual member member schools.
1: Yeah, Paul. Does the uh, NCAA's uh, medical monitoring settlement uh, cut off the right to bring class action lawsuits?
2: And yes. If, if, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it does. So what it what it does is it it for for a certain. There's a carve out for certain class actions that can still be brought, and I think that's what. Uh, Dan Rurley was talking about about the 46 cases. So what, what the judge did in the Northern District of Illinois, there's, this, there's the, the large class action medical monitoring settlement, and then there's a subpart to that, which is uh, single sport, single school class actions. That the, the, Over the past year and a half or so, 46 lawsuits have been filed all around the country against the NCAA, individual conferences, and individual schools. Uh, for what they have now termed the single sport, single school class action. And so that allows for a, a very small class action to be brought against as it, as it descriptively states, a single sport such as football against a single school. So representing a, a group of athletes, group of football players against a single school. And that is currently ongoing. There was just a case management order that was entered. Um, and an appointed lead counsel, and then the next step is they're going to select basically test cases to to go through the merits of, of discovery and see if they can even certify a, a class again, uh, based on a single sport in a single school. So that is currently also pending in the Northern District of Illinois, and, and on, I think, the end of January of 2017, the plaintiffs are supposed to select their test case to determine whether they can get uh, these type of single sport, single school class actions uh, certified.
1: Okay.
0: Interesting. So that's the, that's the, what's coming your way soon in NCAA litigation. Um, You know, I know that there's concussion litigation in other sports as well, probably most notably the NHL. What's happening on that front?
2: Yeah, the NHL concussion litigation is is very fascinating. Unfortunately, it's not getting as much uh, media attention as the NFL did, uh, mm-hmm. but it is it's well beyond merits discovery. There's been some pretty eye eye popping uh, discovery that's been uncovered. You know, I have some very inflammatory statements by by uh, the high rank officers of of the NHL. Um, and so what was just recently filed in December was the plaintiff's motion for class certification. Um, and so they, they're well beyond uh, any preliminary issues, and they're, they're truly at the, the briefing for class certification to see if they can, they can certify a class of all former NHL players uh, that suffered repetitive brain trauma. So the allegations in the, in the, the NHL concussion litigation are, are similar to the NFL in that uh, the plaintiffs allege that the NHL knew or should have known about the long-term effects of repetitive brain trauma in hockey and the link to CTE, and instead of, of educating and, and putting in place rules to protect the players, the NHL profited on on the violence through uh, allowing and, and, and somewhat condoning... Fighting in hockey um, and, and the violence that, that, that comes from the fighting aspect. Uh, so that, that that case is proceeding, it's been proceeding for over three years now. And the plaintiffs have, have won one several several uh, significant rulings. One one ruling that they got that's very helpful for all all uh, professional sport litigation going forward was was the preemption issue. Judge, Judge Nelson and uh, in the District of Minnesota. Uh, denied the NHL's motion to dismiss based on preemption, finding that these claims are not barred by the CBA, the same argument that the NFL raised, stating that these are, are state law claims that can be interpreted without referring to or re- relying upon the CBA. And, and so effectively what she is allowing, she's allowing the, these cases to proceed. Like I said, players have, players have been deposed, the, the executives have been deposed, and now they're at a, at a stage where uh, they're going to see if they can get this case certified. And of course, if a case is certified, that really changes the dynamics because instead of you know, 8, 15, 20 individual plaintiffs, you're, you now have a class of, of several thousand that really increases the pressure uh, for the NHL. And the NHL is going to file their opposition um, sometime later on the spring, and I, I believe the hearing – on that uh, certification motion has been set for July 7th, or July 11th, 2017. So that'll, that'll be something to keep our eyes on as well as we go through the rest of the winter and spring and into the summer.
1: Yet fighting continues unabated in the, in the National Hockey League. Do you find it uh, you know, bizarre that despite efforts to you know, reduce fighting, that it's still, it's still part of the culture of hockey? And given all we've learned about, uh, you know, the, the hockey player suicides, you know, Derek Bugard and uh, the, the uh, unfortunate early deaths of, of other enforcers. Do you think we're going to see the day soon when hockey is actually legislatively li- eliminated from the game?
2: You know, I, I think that's a question that, that you know, is, is certainly on everybody's mind. You have a lot of former players coming out now saying, you know, we, we should do away with fighting. On the other hand, you have others that say no, fighting is an essential part of the game. And I think that is a, an issue that actually is a, a labor issue that has to be resolved between the NHL and NHLPA. Because you think about it, that is a a an entire position, the enforcer, an entire position within the market, the labor market that is that is dedicated. To uh, to fighting and by eliminating the enforcer, you and, and eliminate a certain part of the workforce, and how the owners and, and the NHLPA can come, can come together and figure out a, a solution to that uh, is, is is something that probably needs to be made beyond just the the litigation realm, but instead in the best interest of, of the sport, the best interest of, of the the players that play it, and you know the the future of of the NHL and the kids that are that are playing the game at, at, at the, the, the Pee Wee level all the way up through college.
1: Yeah, I mean, shockingly, um, I hate for the NFL to, you know, look good by comparison, but the NHL has lagged behind the NFL in acknowledging, you know, reality. And they're still in a state of denial about the link – uh, between playing the game of hockey and developing these kinds of symptoms, you know, post-career. The NFL, the NFL, I mean, came to Jesus, you know, during those congressional hearings in, I don't know, it was March or April when Jeffrey Miller, you know, finally acknowledged a link. But to this day, the NHL still, um, you know, is intransigent on that issue. Um, I mean, I mean, do do you see any any you know shifting in that position, or is it still um, you know they're basically dug in because they're in litigation?
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, I I never thought that the NHL concussion litigation was 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 going to be as uh, as prominent or as successful as the NFL because in the NFL you didn't have these explosive allegations of the NFL literally can make creating junk science. Against the NHL, you didn't have those allegations, and I thought the NHL historically had done a decent job in, in, in setting up protocols, but in the heart of litigation, what we find out is is you have Gary Bettman voluntarily writing an article in response to a congressional letter where he flat out denied the link between repetitive brain trauma and CTE, so, I think the, the plaintiff's case got a whole lot better whenever get, Bettman decided to, to write that missive in which he, he disputed and denied the link between uh, repetitive brain trauma in hockey and, and CTE. And, I, and I'm sure the plaintiffs are having a heyday. In fact, they, they recently filed a motion with the court asking that they get to re depose Bettman because of these, this new evidence that he, these new, new uh, publicly reported opinions that he's decided to lay out. And I'm still kind of in shock that that, that the NHL counsel would allow him to to write this, or would 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 say this is a good idea. So you know, I think the the dynamics of the case against uh, the NHL has gotten much better since it was it was first filed.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of these emails that have come out in the, in the in the motion for class certification are just outrageous. You know, recent emails. I mean, the NFL. Um, is is accused of concealing, you know, you know, or concealing the um, the risk from the players long time ago. But the NHL is doing it even to this day. Uh, you know, emails from a couple of years ago, uh, concealing diagnoses from the players. I think I think the discovery in the NHL case uh, really serves as an interesting preview of what's to come with the NFL once the insurers get their hands on those documents.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree, and, and you know, it's – the case still has a long time before trial, yep. but every day it's getting better for the plaintiffs, it appears.
0: Yeah, definitely interesting to keep, keep an eye on. I mean, has any of these cases – this would be the first big trial, I mean, at least big class action trial moving forward, assuming that it would get to that level. Is that right? Everything else is settled before it got even close, right?
2: Right, right. I think our, our Sheila case was probably the case that got the closest to trial. Um, You know, just we were walking up the courthouse steps, effectively before trial started. But on this NHL, I mean, it's it's such a massive case. You know, it's it's a rare rare M D L that actually goes to trial. But but if the parties are able to get past all the substantive motion practice and it to go to trial, I think would would be quite a quite a development in the sports law uh, arena.
0: Yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be a fun one. Even if it was the NHL, which you know historically is kind of the running fourth in the major sports, but uh, I think it would be explosive. And, and from what we've seen already, and just really interesting trial. I have you know one more. We're running short on time, as we promised Paul that we'd be done. Uh, you know, twenty thirty minutes ago, but uh, just as far as the manufacturers go of, of equipment. Um, what's their liability been? I know that they've been sued all over the place. Um, you know, has that put companies out of business? Where, where do we stand with manufacturer liability?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating uh, side note on um, a couple fronts. And just as an example, in our in our Derek Sheila case, we sued the helmet manufacturer and supplier, uh, Shut Sports, and and uh, and, and the supplier. Uh, which is a, a small company in, in, out of Pennsylvania, and what our what our case, our, our theory of liability hinged upon was, was essentially misrepresentations, misrepresenting the quality of of a helmet. And I think that's what manufacturers find their find a, a large target on their back, is because they are overemphasizing the protective capabilities of a helmet. The majority of the public believes that a helmet can prevent concussions or reduce con- concussions or is designed to prevent or reduce concussions and I think the reason why the typical consumer believes that is because that's what the manufacturers have put in consumers minds is that a helmet you put this big plastic thing on your helmet you buy the best equipment it's going to be able to prevent concussions but that's absolutely false and I think the manufacturers got way ahead of themselves in, the, in that idea and their marketing efforts Uh, back in the 2000s and and 2010s, and they've done a tremendous disservice to the public. The sole purpose of a helmet, and it hasn't changed since its inception, is to prevent skull fractures, and it's done a pretty solid job at that. But it's not going to be able to reduce concussions uh, because you think about your brain, your brain is inside a hard casing of your skull. No matter what you put around your head, you're not going to be able to keep... That quote-unquote jello from racketing around inside your brain, inside your skull. So no matter what the the uh, progress that is made in the manufacturing and the design of helmets, I'm not sure the helmet is ever going to be able to to be able to reduce concussions or even pre- prevent concussions. So I think manufacturers have 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 an obligation, or they absolutely absolutely have an obligation to uh, be honest and truthful with consumers, and that is a, another subset of the NFL concussion litigation is again is currently against Riddell, and that is another part of the NFL concussion litigation that is still proceeding. There hasn't been any settlement discussions in that regard. Is numerous players still have pending claims against Riddell, and Riddell is alleged to have acted uh, somewhat in in cohorts with. With the NFL and creating junk science about uh, the the abilities of a helmet, so we'll see whether the plaintiffs are going to be successful in proving in their cases against Riddell and and their and the Riddell's alleged failure to warn about the helmet's inability to protect against concussions.
1: Yeah. Um- I have uh, one, one last question for you, Paul, before we get to the, you know, real finisher, which is you can't let a podcast go without a Donald Trump question and what that might mean uh, for subject X, Y, or Z. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, your question uh, of December. But with all the talk of, you know, settlements, with the, with the NFL settlement being in place and the NCAA having reached a medical monitoring settlement, we're still seeing an avalanche of new case filings. You know, the NCAA had, you know, 40 some odd suits, and now the UFC, I'm sorry, not the UFC, the World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, I want to talk for a second about combat sports. Of all the sports that would pose the most likely incidents and recurrence of brain injuries, I think combat sports would probably be at the top of the list. Boxing, wrestling, MMA. What's going on uh, on that front with litigation, and where do, do you is there um, a next wave of litigation that you expect to see coming down the pike that you know where where, where it, it will become uh, you know one of the one of the more important you know subjects because I don't think the UFC is, is UFC is too too new. And uh, you know, but, but I think wrestling, boxing, and mixed martial arts present uh, a, a whole category unto itself of of potential, uh, you know, concussion litigation.
2: You're right. You know, as as a plaintiff's lawyer who's who's litigated these cases, from my point of view, I I wouldn't be able to take one of the one of the combat sports cases unless it was some instance in which an athlete was clearly concussed. And a doctor evaluated the athlete and returned to play and then they sub- subsequently suffered a traumatic brain injury such as second impact syndrome. I think those cases are, are, are very difficult uh, on, on a failure to warn basis just because I, the defense of assumption of risk and you know, open and obvious is, is pretty apparent in which the sole purpose in, in boxing and these combat sports is literally to give your opponent a concussion. To, to knock them out. Um, but with that being said, there is a massive hole in the knowledge of, of these, these, these combatants, these athletes that are, that are engaging in, in, in boxing and, and, and fighting. In fact, I, just as an anecdotal story, I was talking to an athlete the other day um, and I, I said, "Do you, do you know?" And I asked him about CTE and whether he's ever ever even heard of it. And despite being being involved in, in fighting for the last five five to ten years, he didn't even know what CTE was. Um, and that really is truly alarming to me. That if you have this billion dollar organization such as the UFC or or these other other organizers of sport, and they're not even taking the effort to educate their athletes about CTE and, you know, another quote unquote industrial disease that was known about since the 1920s in boxing, they're not even taking the measures to, to, to educate their, these athletes. I think that does open a potential door for liability. So, you know, who knows what clever lawyer may, may put together a, a group of, of former UFC fighters or, or other uh, combatants um, to, to file a case. That that may very well happen. I think they're going to be subject to a pretty significant assumption of the risk of defense, but I guess the question is going to have to be framed in a particular way. That what risk did they really assume? They may have assumed the the the, the knockout punch, um, but did they assume this later in life uh, cognitive issues such as? Dementia, or or even CTE, and and I think if perhaps if the question is presented in a in a very narrow way, and focused on CTE, there may be some merit to that litigation, and, and who knows, maybe we will we will see that next.
0: All right, Dan, you gotta you gotta ask your Trump question now. All right,
1: uh, as as we move as we as we delicately and subtly move from uh, uh, Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Um, we have uh, many differences between the two presidents, the president-elect. Uh, I noticed that they have starkly different views of of the concussion issue. Barack Obama stated a couple of years ago that he wouldn't he'd think twice about letting his uh, you know child or children you know play football. But on the other hand, Donald Trump. Doesn't think that there's enough violence in the NFL, and has actually called the NFL soft, you know, in you know, you know, in reducing and and you know, trying to you know, you know, safeguard the players. How do you see you know Donald Trump's you know, you know, presidency potentially slowing down or detrimentally, you know, impacting any any further positive developments, you know, in in protecting athletes.
2: Yeah, I'm certainly concerned. I mean, that those statements that he made while he was on the campaign trail were were, were a tremendous disservice to to the public. Essentially, poo pooing the idea of, of 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 protecting an athlete whenever they suffer a, a brain injury, that is alarming and that's troubling. Um, I guess the only the only thing is obviously I was not a, a Trump supporter. Uh, but one thing that I think we've all realized is whatever we think, it's is going to happen. It's it may not happen. So hopefully it's just more rhetoric on on Donald Trump's part. I he did recently join with uh, with with Jim Brown, um, I think that was his name, the former NFL NFL player. And I know um, I know Trump um, and and Brown. What, let me make sure I have his name. Is, is it Jim Brown?
1: Yep, greatest yeah. running back of all
2: time. Yeah, exactly. I, I apologize on my lack of. Uh, Historical knowledge. I, I know Jim Brown has been pretty outspoken about CTE and concussions. So my only hope is that that Jim Brown is going to have Trump's ear in that regard, and and Donald Trump will accept it as fact that repetitive brain trauma causes CTE, and, and maybe maybe Trump will be the the guy that that is an actual advocate for for these athletes. That can be our only hope. Um, but you know. As we've we've all learned, we know nothing whenever it comes to to Trump.
0: Yeah, another another case of uh, the big mystery of what will happen during the Trump presidency. But uh, you know, hopefully, this one is or taking action on this is far down his priority list, and he'll kind of keep out of it. But uh, in any event, Paul, it's been it's been amazing getting to talk to you, getting the total history of all of this. I, I know I've learned a ton. I'm assuming Dan has as well, and I'm. Yep. I'm uh, sure that our listeners are extremely appreciative of you coming on, so uh, we wish you a extremely happy and lucky 2017, and thanks again for coming on. Well, guys,
2: thanks again for the opportunity. It was a true pleasure. I, I love listening to your guys' podcast. You're doing a tremendous job, and I can only expect that it's just going to get better
0: in 2017. Appreciate well, that. We're definitely going to bring you back soon uh, when you know specific yeah. things come up.
1: Yeah, and this is definitely a relief for me because I, 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 dreaded, I dreaded this episode because it was the hardest one to prepare for. So, you know, got that out of the way in 2016. And uh, I think it's fitting that you're the final guest of uh, the 2016 calendar year. And uh, you're one of the first people that I followed, uh, you know, on Twitter. And I view you as the seminal expert in the field of, you know, the law surrounding, you know, sports concussions. Uh, so I urge all of our listeners. Uh, to follow Paul on Twitter at Paul uh, D. Anderson and to check out his uh, um, path-breaking website, uh, NFLLitigation.com. I wish you and your family a Happy New Year and thanks for joining us on the final episode of 2016, Paul.
2: Thank you guys again. Have a Happy New Year. Thanks, Paul. Thanks.